0: Hello, Westwood. I'm excited to kick off our new series today called Thrive with our special guest, Jim Candy. Jim is a good friend to Westwood and many of you will recognize him as the keynote speaker at our recent parenting conference. Jim hit the ball out of the park at that parenting conference, and we're thrilled that he's back again to speak on the topic, Thriving in Family. Jim speaks nationally on the topic of family and partners with the Fuller Youth Institute on a book called, Can I Ask That? which is designed to help foster conversations about the questions teenagers have about God, the Bible, and real life. Jim has served on multiple church staffs and most recently planted a church in Colorado that's thriving itself. He currently serves as the Central U.S. Regional Director for Stadia, an organization that plants churches domestically and globally. Jim is married, has two wonderful boys, loves fly fishing, and this is really fun. He's the former announcer for the Denver Nuggets, Colorado Avalanche, and the Stanford Cardinal men's basketball program. So let's all enjoy that smooth voice today. Jim, thanks for being with us. And friends, give a warm Westwood welcome to Jim Candy. Thank you, thank you. I'm not. I'm not sure how
1: smooth my voice is. We'll, we'll take a poll afterwards. But it is so great to be here. I feel like because he introduced me that way, I should announce something. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Westwood. I mean, come on. No, I'm so glad to be here. I actually have uh, just some weird connections where I've known people at my home church that have called Westwood their home. So. Uh, It is a real honor. This is an amazing church. So thank you uh, sincerely so much for having me be a part of this uh, today. Here's what I want to talk. I just want to dive right into it. So you think about a church. I can't think of anything that I would rather be true about a church than it, it could say that it's young people. It's middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, young adults would leave this church someday and have a passionate love for Jesus. Can you imagine anything better being said about a church than that? You know, and I'm not just talking about like, yeah, we kind of socialize them into the church system. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like a passionate love of Jesus. That's what I want to talk about today. That's what I want to talk about in light of our community here and how I think every single person in this room, in this church community, can have a role to play where that vision could be true. So we're going to talk about family and what it means and how that impacts it. But I, I, um, I want to introduce you. My family first seems appropriate. Uh, here's a picture of my family. It's my wife, Karen, and our two boys, Josh and Micah. Josh, the tall one over there on the right. He's a senior uh, in high school. And Micah, my uh, sophomore over there, they both have red hair. Neither Karen nor I have red hair and I don't want to hear a word about it. Anybody in this room, okay? Uh, now, those of you parents, you know, it's, it's crazy. They like tower us now, uh, but it wasn't always that way, right? Here's a little shot of them when they were little. This is when they were like age five and two or something like that. Aren't they cute? Look at Josh with his little Stanford shirt on and Mike has got his blue blankie and Oh, these kids are so great. And, um, you know, just a little story to give you an idea of how our family rolls. We had a circular floor plan in our house when they were little at that age. Uh, any parents out there, what do kids do when they have a circular floor plan? They chase each other. <laughs> like all day long, they chase each other. And our kids would just chase each other nonstop. And so one day, Micah, the younger one, was chasing his older brother. And they're going round and around in circles. And Josh goes around this corner and he trips. And he kind of like, I picture him like flying through the air kind of trip. Like, this is a bad trip. And unfortunately for Josh, we had this really thick coffee table, like big top, right? So he's like flying through the air and I'm like, ah. And sure enough, he just smacks his head right on the coffee table. And guys, instantly, he's just like, Bleh! You know, and there's this like bump, like immediately coming off his forehead. Well, so I don't know how your family rolls with stuff like this, but my family, we have a trick. When somebody gets hurt, they get this. You know what this is? This is a boo bunny, okay? A boo bunny, it's brilliant, is ri- it's just an ice cube, except it's got some fabric around it and it's in the shape of a little bunny rabbit. This fixes anything, <laughs> OK, like you you put this on a kid and they're just like, ah, ah, you know, they're like, fine that like, actually, if you don't have kids, you should get one of these. these <laughs> like it, it cures anything, right? Like growing hair, whatever it is that you need. Get a boo bunny. Well, Josh is like, you know, got his like bump coming out of his head and he's over in the corner and he's like, ah, and he's like, the lip is quivering, you know. Well, Micah sees all this and he walks over to Josh, looks at the boo bunny and says, the infamous word of a two-year-old, mine, <laughs> right? Josh is like, hey, Micah. <laughs> Josh like air lats, man. This is like Western style. Looks at Mike, or Josh and says, mine, right? Well, I'm the typical dad. I'm like trying to watch ESPN or something, you know, while this fight's going on. And finally, it gets bad enough that I'm like having to pay attention And I look over, and I'm like, what is going on here? Micah, don't you see what happened to your brother? He hit his head on the coffee table, so he gets the boo money. Leave him alone. I see his two-year-old mind start to work. No kidding. He walks over to the coffee table, (laughs) takes it in both hands, and headbutts the coffee table. No kidding. He walks back over to Josh and says, Mine. (laughs) What do you do? If you're a dad, honestly, what do you do? I looked at Josh and I said, Josh, give him the Boo Bunny. (laughs) That was incredible. Give him the, that kid's gonna play in the NFL someday. Give him the Boo Bunny now. I'm a terrible dad. I'm terrible. You guys, that was my high point. It's just gotten worse from there. (laughs) Downhill. And fortunately, I'm not alone. Right? We have a huge history of bad parenting in our world. I'm part of a long tradition. And guess what? You even see it in the scripture. You guys, today I want to show you a passage in the Bible. We're going to kind of diagnose. Like, was this bad parenting? And the stakes are high. On this one, because we're not like pulling some random parents out of like 2 Chronicles or something like that. We're going to look at Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. And we're going to have a chance to look and see, did they blow it as parents? Outside the birth narrative, this is the one glimpse we get of Jesus as a a child at age 12. Some of you familiar with this passage. Suspend your familiarity. And enter into this passage with discovery. If you're new to the Bible, new to church, you know, new to Westwood, new to faith, come along here as we look at this, and I hope that you're going to love Jesus a little bit more when we're done. So this is from Luke chapter 2, and it starts in verse 41. It says, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. As usual. Okay, so this, if you're unfamiliar with this, the Passover celebrated the exodus of the Israelites from uh, when they were in captivity in Egypt, okay, all the way back in the Old Testament Exodus. God miraculously saved the people, brought them out of that land, and they would celebrate every year with a Passover festival. So all these families, Jesus included, right, would stream from all over the place, come to Jerusalem for this festival every year. That's exactly what's going on right now in the scripture. So verse 43, after the celebration was over, they'd been there, they started home to Nazareth. Okay, now let's pause. This isn't like now, like there wasn't like um, back then a Southwest flight that they catch from Jerusalem up to Nazareth for a half an hour. This would have been a journey, you guys. We're talking about like three or four days minimum walking with potential danger on the route. Give you a little idea of what the route looked like. They would have left from Jerusalem, journeyed through Jericho, across uh, the Jordan River, all the way up north, and then across the Jordan River again back to Nazareth. That was one of two routes that they might have taken. Some of you guys are looking at it going, well, why didn't they just walk straight up from (laughs) Jerusalem to Nazareth? You know why? They hated the people that lived there. They hated the Samaritans. Which, by the way, if you ever read John chapter 4, Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, it gives you a little bit of sense of, oh, he went straight up through Samaria. Four days, potentially dangerous. This is the route that they had to take. Now, look what happens. Back to verse 43. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. He's 12. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and their friends. Okay, pause. You left Jesus behind? You left the Son of God back in Jerusalem? Really? Come on. Guys, how in the world do they do this? What parents leave their kid behind? I can only think of one. Macaulay Culkin's parents left their kid (laughs) behind when they went to France, right? This is the Bible's home alone moment right here. (laughs) Jesus gets left behind in Jerusalem to fend off the wet bandits or whoever. And the parents are a day down the road. Look what happens. Going back now, verse 45, when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him. Three days later, one out, right? Probably through Jericho, across the Jordan River, one out, he's not here. One back, and now one looking for him. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, there's more of the story that you gotta get in there and read if you don't know it. But here's what I want you to first just notice. Don't you love this guy? I just I I love Jesus in this moment. I don't care if he's 12. He is God come to earth. He didn't need to be listening. He could have been holding court teaching, even at age 12. But he's listening and he's asking questions and he's dialoguing. I, I just, it's the roots of humility. If there's anything I love about Jesus, it is that humility that you see in him. And here it is on display. Don't, don't read over this passage without just going, I love that guy. But the second thing that we got to look at with this passage is we have to ask the question, how did Joseph and Mary let this happen? How did this happen? Uh, Some of you, you real observant types, you're sitting there and you noticed, I have some yogurt with me that I brought up here. And you're thinking, uh, maybe this is what they do in Colorado, right? The preachers can't make it all the way through a sermon. So uh, maybe it's like the altitude or something. they got to stop and take a little snack break. Um, No, this is oikos yogurt. And I want to teach you this word today because I think it's going to help frame not only this passage, but hopefully some of our life together as a church community. An oikos. An oikos translated in the New Testament dozens of times throughout the New Testament. An oikos means family, but it's usually translated more as household. Now, I want you to stop and think for a second. When you think of the word family, what do you think of? For most of us, the immediate thought parents, kids, nuclear family. Oikos meant more than that. Oikos was nuclear family plus. It meant parents, it meant kids, it meant aunts, it meant uncles, it meant grandparents, and it went beyond blood. Oikos meant the people that we do business with. For affluent families, it may have even meant their servants. Oikos was a family of families, a community, a sphere of influence. Oikos was not just a nuclear family. In fact, you guys, there's no word in the New Testament for nuclear family. The lens through which family was understood was through the oikos. And here's why it matters. The spiritual life of people was caught up in their oikos. You see this in John chapter 4 when a government leader's son is healed and he and his entire household oikos come to faith acts chapter 18 a synagogue leader named Crispus comes to faith and does and so does his entire oikos but it mattered for young people why Because it wasn't just mom and dad looking out for kids. In fact, the clue was right there in the scripture that we read. Remember it said his parents, Joseph and Mary, didn't miss Jesus at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. They assumed that the oikos was with him. Joseph and Mary, I don't believe, were terrible parents. They were living in a different paradigm than we do. They were living in a paradigm where multiple adults came alongside the young people in their culture. That's a little harder to pull off today, wouldn't you say? Joseph and Mary depended on their oikos for their survival and their livelihood. Do we? I would say we kind of don't need to. Uh, I don't, I'm just... Obviously still getting to know you guys, but this culture and this community, it does strike me similar to where I'm from, which is a town I'm sure a lot of you know named Boulder, which is right outside of Denver. One thing I would say about Boulder could be true of here too. If I was going to describe Boulder, one of the words I would use is affluent. We're not hurting for resources. Unless you're trying to buy a house, then you're kind of hurting. But Boulder's affluent. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to make some like vow of poverty for the sake of your kids today, okay? But I do want us to be really clear about how in the light of what we're talking about in this passage, how affluence will affect our kids. If there's one thing that happens, affluent cultures all over the globe, there is a direct result of affluence, usually resulting in isolation. Joseph and Mary... Integrated in their community for their survival. Contrasted to us, right? We're the only culture, you know, in the history of the world that can drive their SUVs into our garages, shut the garage door, go inside, pull out our credit card, and get our groceries delivered to our front door an hour from now by ClickList on Amazon. Guys, that doesn't breed relationships. Unless you're like super extrovert and you make friends with the Amazon guy, Right? <laughs> but it breeds isolation instead. It can be so hard in this culture to build an oikos. And part of the problem then for our kids is when you are around other people, when families know each other, there's an incredible affection that comes about. Come on, those of you guys who are coaches or teachers. You have an affection for the kids that you're around and a part of. But when we are living into isolation, affection is harmed. Guys, sometimes um, right now uh, social scientists will refer to this as we might live in a day and age where so, what's called social capital is at its lowest ever for young people especially. Social capital, the ability to be in relationships with other people, especially adults. Why? Why? because we're living in a culture that breeds isolation. Here's what scares me. The result of isolation is often institutional. Some of you are like, how do I read that? Institutional priority. Here's what I mean. About seven years ago, somebody had this really cool idea that they were gonna start something called Little League Baseball. And the idea is we're gonna get 10 to 12 year olds together And we're going to help them build relationships with their peers. We're going to help them build relationships with the umpires and the coaches. And it is going to be this healthy environment where we play together, athletics. But really, it's a relational system. Anybody been to a club baseball game lately? (laughs) Guys, have we become a culture that is more about the agenda of the adults that lead the institutions that kids are a part of? I can tell you as a dad of a senior in high school who just walked through the college admission process with my kid, that process was not about his mental health. Don't be naive to how this affects you and your culture and your family and our kids. Because here's the deal, kids aren't naive to it. I guess about age 15 or 16, where kids' thinking goes from kind of concrete and shifts into more abstract thinking, right? Like a a 12-year-old seventh grader, like they've got the whole world figured out, very concrete. As they move into high school, they start to think more abstractly and part of what happens at that age is they start to smell the system. They start to sense adult strategy and agenda that kids, especially high school kids, will look at it and go, does my coach like me for me, or does my coach like the fact that my mom Venmo's him $3,000 for the 12 tournaments I'm playing over the next three months? Does my teacher love me, or does my teacher love my test scores that raises the profile of the school? Guys, kids know this. They are desperate, desperate for adults in their lives that actually do not have an agenda for them. Adults in their lives, especially in an affluent culture where performance is God, who actually don't care as much about their performance as they care about them. They're desperate for an oikos, a church family, that just breathes, we love you. Guys, this is all through our culture. Now, fortunately, right, the church doesn't have any problem with this, right? Can I show you what I think's happened in church culture? So if you go back like 150 years or something, people had extremely long torsos. I'm terrible. I'm like the worst artist. My wife was an art major. She's at home right now going. But you had adults and you had kids, and they were kind of in the same system. The culture was such that you grew up, you learned a trade from your parents, and the churches kind of reflected that, that you had adults and kids together in kind of the same system together about 100 years ago, the economy changed, right? Industrial Revolution. Parents are now not at home teaching their kids a trade. They're going off to factories or working or whatever. And we had to figure out something to do with our kids. So we figured out, well, we're going to send them to high school. Hey, that's a 100-year-old experiment that we're in. And what happened was is kids now started to create their own separate little world, a little world that we would just call youth culture, started to emerge. Had never been true for centuries just now, in the last century, that this is starting to happen, the church started noticing these kids actually don't want to show up anymore. And they're not fitting exactly as they used to into our church culture. And it was about the 1960s where churches said, We got to do something about this, right? All these kids are listening to Elvis and whatever. And we got to figure out how do we help them integrate back into the life of the church. And what they did was they hired. They decided, you know what? We we got to get somebody on our staff who's a youth pastor, a student pastor, a children's pastor. And so we created this little circle that sits connected to the church, but it really has its own staff, its own budget, its own programs, its own services. It's connected, but it's kind of not. It sits to the side of the church. Uh, one person who kind of observed this said it's a one eared Mickey Mouse right? See that? It's a one-eared Mickey Mouse. And so the job of the church becomes how good can we make this one-eared Mickey Mouse? And we need to make a middle school Mickey Mouse ear that passes kids off well to the high school Mickey Mouse ear that then goes to the college Mickey Mouse ear. And so much of what happens in churches is how do we pass them down the Mickey Mouse trail? But is that healthy? especially when we sometimes as adults, we're so used to a system now where we outsource things, right? We, we look at um, whatever sport your kid's a part of, SAT tutors, like we outsource everything because we feel inadequate. So we will outsource not only their athletics, their music, their performance, that mentality has crept in now. We outsource their faith. We outsource them to people that we have bought who sit in the Mickey Mouse here. And sometimes those people embrace that idea as well. And so sometimes this can become its own entity where we have kind of showmen, showwomen who are trying to figure out the latest games. And I'm not criticizing any of that to some degree, except we actually, to be healthy, need to think completely differently about this role. Instead of a Mickey Mouse ear, the job of a youth pastor, the job of your children's ministry is to not create a Mickey Mouse ear that's successful. Their job is to create a funnel where the young people that they are in are actually cycled back into the life of the church, and that means back into relationships with you. Their job is not to be a showman or showwoman. Their job is to be a relational broker, where they invite you into relationships with kids. This is gonna be messy if you embrace it because they are not looking for chaperones for the Mickey Mouse here. They're looking for shepherds. They're looking for people that love kids without an agenda. Because every person in this room can play a part in that and i'm not asking that that you have to go to the sixth grade lock-in okay but i am saying who are the kids in your sphere that you love and you know and if you can't answer that question we got to change that westwood would you do this would you become an oikos i want to give you three I hope concrete thoughts just to close out here on how this could practically play out in a culture. Here's the first one. I hope that Westwood can be what I would just call a lemonade stand church. Here's what I mean by it. Uh, we have a rule in our family. If, if you drive down the street and there's a kid with a lemonade stand out and they've got a little glass of lemonade and a sign that says 50 cents, you always stop. You have to stop, you have to get a glass of lemonade, and you have to pay five bucks. <laughs> Why? Not because we're spoiling a kid. The reason we do that is because we have to have no strings attached generosity. Because The way that people who don't yet know Jesus, I think in this culture, especially in our culture today, the way people who do not yet know Jesus come to know Jesus is through disorienting generosity. The kind of generosity that makes somebody scratch their head and go, what? You, you're telling me that everybody else in my life is about their agenda, but then I'm part of this church community where the adults in that community actually love me regardless of my performance? You know what happens in a kid's heart? They go, maybe God just loves me too, like that. Lemonade stand. Bring that kind of relational, no strings attached, disorienting generosity to your young people. There's a church researcher named George Barna who, uh, in one of his kind of famous stats, says that 94% of Christians who are following Jesus say that they chose to do so before the age of 18. 94%. Think about it. And then I think of the last words recorded by Matthew in Jesus, the Great Commission, when he says, therefore, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's the Great Commission. Go, see people who don't know Jesus yet come to know him. That's Jesus' command. Here's what I want to say. If you are someone here who says, oh, I'm kind of done with kids. It's somebody else's turn. Or ah, If you're done with kids or you're separated from kids, you're functionally done with the Great Commission. If you're done with kids, you're done with the Great Commission. A lemonade stand church says, no way. Man, we see kids out there in the hallway. They'd break something in that beautiful lobby. We smile at them. We love them. Be a lemonade stand church. Second idea is, I'm just learning more about your here and your far initiative. You guys, this is close to my heart, and I'm just starting to figure out what all it means. But uh, I've gone, as Joel said in the video, I've gone to work now with an organization called Stadia. And we plant churches domestically. We plant them all over the globe. Uh, And here's the reason why that I felt like I want to give my life over to this mission. The United States is at its lowest ever rate of church planting per capita ever in its history. There is a strong correlation between new church bodies and young people. Disproportionate. When you have a new church, a new church body, it reaches younger people. And Gen Z, this kind of youngest generation coming up, is the largest in U.S. history. So okay, connect those dots. If we're gonna reach young people, we have got to start new church expressions. It's so why this here near far, guys, I'm telling you, if every church in America had that kind of vision, the conversation nationally about young people and their faith would be vastly different. Jump on and go for it. I hope you do. Third, third thing, build your oikos. You know, we used to say, uh, kind of the phrase was, hey, for every one uh, a chaperone, we could probably pair them with five kids, you know, one to five ratio. We're going to flip that. Here's what I want you to think about in this church. What if there were five adults that loved every one kid without an agenda? What if that was the goal of Westwood, to build that kind of oikos? Jesus-loving adults came around every one kid. That would change The nature of this church or any church because if you're a young parent you got little kids don't just go out and do play dates make a deal talk to those other parents and say hey you're gonna love my kids even when they get in trouble in middle school I'm gonna love your kids we're gonna become an oikos invite older people into that you have to in this culture you have to be extremely intentional about creating this. Those of you who have middle and high schoolers, man, I know. I know the pressure. We, we did baseball. We did track. We did it all. I have seen so many times my heart breaks when a kid, because for sure they're going to get a college scholarship, somehow doesn't end up interacting with the church body because it's tournament number seven of the summer. Resist that temptation. If you have a chance to send them on a mission trip, send them on a camp, send them on something where they can interact with adults that'll love them without an agenda, that is a much greater gift than any baseball tournament they're going to play down the road. Be intentional about building your oikos. You know, part of my prayer would be that Uh, most churches I've seen, like the children's people are always begging for volunteers. There ought to be a line outside their door. And what chaperones? They need you as a shepherd. Would you do that? Build your oikos. Be a part of somebody else's oikos. You know, uh, Jesus had this great moment when some people uh, came to him and wanted to have their kids meet Jesus. And some of you know the story. The disciples got all mad, right? Kids were actually not valued in that culture. And so they, the Bible says they were indignant. And what does Jesus say? Let them come. Lemonade stand heart. I pray that for this church. You guys, would you stand for a moment? And I just want to say a final prayer over you. Lord, lift to you, Westwood Church. May your face shine upon this church for a thousand generations and to its oikos and to its children. And we pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.